how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? Hey everybody, this is Rose. And this is Louisa. And you're listening to Sober Sex. I made a promise to myself to stop not listening. What it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality. It started with putting down the substances, really, and starting to listen. And the listening to my body has changed. Heather Hayes is the founder and CEO of Heather R. Hayes & Associates. She is a master's level licensed counselor and a board certified Arise interventionist. She has over 30 years of experience working with addiction, specializing in the treatment of adolescents and young adults, trauma, brain disorders, complex mental health issues, and the full spectrum of addiction disorders. Heather also volunteers as a hostage negotiator for the Forsyth County Sheriff's Department and SWAT team. She is in long-term recovery herself, She rides and shows horses on the A circuit, and she was my interventionist many moons ago. We are so humbled and grateful to have Heather on Sober Sex. That's Um, right. People that we love and ask them inappropriate questions about their sex lives. (laughs) Um, So first of all, welcome to the show, Heather. Um, First things first, what are your pronouns? So my pronouns are she, her, and, and hers. Awesome. Same. Um, And where are you and how are you? So I'm great. Right now, I'm sitting in Georgia, right outside of Atlanta, on my 11-acre horse farm, looking out at a stunning view of the horses, and I'm, I'm great. In fact, I've, this is an exciting week for me because I get to spend some time with you. And then two days, a day at a time, I will have been, I will have been in continuous recovery for 40 years, which oh is my kind God. of a big week for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. I'm, congratulations, day at a time in two days. Hopefully, day at a time, <laughs> two to go. So I'm a little superstitious. Like, I don't want to get hit by a bus today or something. But um, yeah, so uh, February 24th, 1982 is my recovery day. So yeah. That's so awesome. Congratulations. Like, what, a, what an amazing thing to like know to know firsthand how how much your recovery has helped other people get sober so that's that's really like myself included um so congratulations i mean in two days we'll we'll reserve it for the for the two days from now but like that's that's right awesome thank you you. Um, it's cool i mean that's like 40 years can you believe it no i can't i mean i really can't like there's so i got I went into treatment when I was 21 and I really like, I've always been kind of a wonderer, like what if, what'll happen? And even when I was a kid, you know, I remember I could, I would sit and, you know, try and, I mean, at a young age, like look up at the sky and be like, why are we here? We're specks or all these stars. Like, what's the purpose? What am I going to be like? What's going to happen? So I did the same thing, you know, opposite of keeping it a day at a time, but it was really more kind of like not an anxious, believe me, I could get anxious, but it was not as much of an anxious place as more of like, I wonder, I want, what'll, ha- what'll it be like? What'll it be like when I have, first of all, a month? And I thought, when I get a month, I'll be great. Everything yeah. will be good. It'll be smooth sailing. <laughs> Life's problem you know, solved. And then I was like, 
problem solved, you know, got this thing licked. So then it was like, what about a year? Then I think like, you know, oh, I'm 21. Like what happens? Like, wow, when I'm 31, when I'm 41, like when I'm 51, God, what will I be like when I'm 61? Like I'll have been, you know, if I do it, I'll have like 40 years. So it's, um, some of it is just almost like, you know, really like emphasizes for me, like we really only have the, a day, each day, like seize the moment. Every day is a gift and time just flies. Yeah. And, you know, as I sit where I'm at, I look and I go, you know, it's a great life. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful a day at a time I did it. It seems surreal. You know, God willing, I live 20 more years and we'll be talking about having 60 years, you know, but it's, um, it's been a real gift. It's been a real gift to be able to like get to know myself and then have the 12 steps and the support. And like you, there is nothing better than getting it young. You know, I am so grateful I got it young. And I think that's part of my passion for really coming in and helping young people because it's like you can just create like, okay, we've got the wounding, the healing, the addiction. Let's just get that taken care of, go inside and, you know, really create the kind of life you want. And um, it's amazing. So like one of your specialties is definitely like adolescents and young adults and, and getting them into treatment and getting them into recovery. And like we had Jessica Leahy on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and she's uh-huh. awesome. And, you know, she was talking about how kind of addiction affects the brains of, of young people differently, but like kind of what's been your experience in dealing with that population specifically? Well, I would say um, dealing with it and in myself. Yeah. Like, also. <laughs> for, yeah. Like for me, cause most of my story is of a teenager, young adult, you know? And so I was so immature. I had like no coping skills. So like all of those developmental skills of like learning how to socialize and connect and manage my stress and anxiety and even learning how to study all of those things. Like I was, had such a deficit and we used to talk about it like, Oh, you know, when you start using, you stop emotionally developing. And I think that that's true. And I think even more so like there are other things that happen along the way too, that made it for me when I picked up my first drug that I went, Oh, here's the answer to my shyness, to my stress, to my awkward feelings. You know, so it, uh, so really, I think I was even younger emotionally. And then my other piece was that, like, I would begin to, I kind of grew in different ways. So uh, probably one of the first places um, I started to grow was maybe academically because I was in school. So I started learning how to study, but still my relationships were hard and I still had anxiety and I still had um, you know, a lot of issues from, you know, childhood trauma and stuff. So as time went on, like each of those started to develop. And it's interesting because thinking about like sober sex, um, you know, I think one of the tasks of adolescence is learning about who you are uh, sexually and who you are in, in relationships. And all of a sudden that becomes a big issue when you hit puberty. And for me, there was always sort of a awkwardness. I was you know, pretty empty. So even when I got into, you know, into recovery, I still felt empty. Like, who am I? And they would say, who are you? What do you, what do you like? And I, it was just like a blank. Mm 
I was like, like da, I don't, da, I don't da. know. <laughs> Which yeah, is so I don't funny. Know. Because, like, I've known you. Like we, I guess we met and you were 25 years sober. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I was like, how is that possible? That feels impossible. Um, <laughs> right, right, and, right. And like, you know, you meet somebody 25 years into recovery and they have a pretty good idea of kind of who they are and what they like, which kind of is knowing, knowing that, you know, meeting you at that point and hearing that it was, it was not always like that is always like, it kind of affirms yeah. that this is a process <clears throat> and that the process takes time. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when I think back about it, I always, you know, there's so much like compassion now for that mm. young Heather, like me as a young person, because I was so insecure and so, you know, it feels very foreign to me now of who I am as a woman, because I'm a pretty strong, powerful, um, a selfish woman, <laughs> but I wasn't always. I mean, I was insecure, even around being a therapist. I remember when I was applying to grad school, like I would go to my mentors and I would, you know, like my, my big question was like, do you think I could be a counselor? Do you think I could do it? You think it'd be okay? Like I was so unsure of myself so it was um you know very fragile very empty and and also like really for me it, I was young and when I went into treatment it was 1982 so there weren't a lot of rehabs so the one that I went to thank god helped me understand that I wasn't going crazy because I was already already a psych major trying to figure myself out which was really like you said, I started getting those books and I'm like self-diagnosing. And, you know, and I probably yeah. did look like I had like all of them, but I was like, oh no. And now this and oh God, you know, and plus I was doing cocaine. So I was in like a cocaine psychosis <laughs> in a lot of way. I was paranoid. And so I'm like, oh my God, I'm schizophrenic. Like, you know, so it was, it was Sorry, a painful, great, yes. Let me get high and read this book. Let me get high and read this book and figure myself out. Oh, shit, it's really bad. I better get high to deal with it. You know, that was really how it was. So thank God I ended up at a place where they were like, you have a disease. You're not crazy. Um, but I was in treatment with all these addicted physicians. It was a And I wasn't. I was like a college student. So it was um, – it was – there was a whole coming into like, I knew there was something wrong with me. I knew I was in pain. I asked for help. Unlike anybody I ever work with. You know, so. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I got there, but I also heard their stories of like losing spouses and losing jobs and getting arrested. And I'm like, I don't have a spouse. So for me, it was also coming to grips with the fact that my pain at such a young age that got me there was an internal loss of self going against my moral values, my moral compass, being someone I, I, I wasn't. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that happened from my, from my deficits, you know, and a lot of that happened in how, you know, getting confused with, you know, love and sex and, you know, who I was as a woman and how to get attention and, you know, what was okay. Or that also like, having blackouts and waking up the next day and being like, what did I do? What happened? And so there was a way where, um, that was also a trauma for me, like having, for sure. you know, flashbacks from it. So it played into my really, um, coming around and, 
in making peace with who I was as a, you know, with my, as a sexual individual, who I was, um, with my own sense of self and who I was in relationship and how I was, how I wanted to show up and how I wanted to be treated and all of that. It was just so all, you know, it was just really interconnected. Yeah, I totally hear that. And it's cool because it's a lot of the um, <clears throat> interviews we've done with people who have earlier, like who are newer in recovery, um, but are kind of work, like not working in this space, but kind of exploring this space in terms of like creating content and having meme accounts and doing their own podcasts and having all of this like exciting it, it's it feels like a really new way of talking about and dealing with like recovery holistically and mm -hmm. for me like I think I, I absorbed a lot of what recovery had to offer in a kind of like judeo-christian mindset which made me like feel very pious around sex <laughs> and right, kind of right. like yeah I feel like I had to like be almost nun-like and mm -hmm. like shut down the part of my sexuality that I felt like was linked to my drug use you know and so it's been really cool to kind of feel that there's a new uh, like a new generation mindset around recovery being really like fully authentic and dealing with trauma and dealing with embodiment and dealing with like outside issues in a way that feels like oh fuck like it is evolving you know it's really it's awesome to to come into contact with it really is i i think i had sort of a similar experience too so the whole judeo-christian and southern female oh yeah and so <laughs> you know so i had the whole like it didn't matter if i did drugs or cussed out my teachers at prep school and got kicked out or you know, had these atrocious behaviors, you know, uh, at least you couldn't call me a slut. Like that was like you know, worse than anything else I could have possibly done to myself given that paradigm. And yet, you know, it, 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 that would fed into like, okay, you know, you know, I just got drunk and I didn't mean to make out with that guy in front of 30 people. And now everybody's talking about it and how awful, you know, and yeah, the so, shame it part. went against the shame part. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Are yes. you observing a change in like mental health and addiction since the pandemic? Like mm, how has your work changed? Great... Yeah. Oh, it's changed a good bit. Like one of the things that I've seen, like some of it bubbling before the pandemic, but definitely during the pandemic, more intense mental health, uh, mental health issues, a lack of resources for people. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the resources got shut down for families and individuals during the pandemic. You know, everything is gone, or at least for a while went virtual. Even for me, I stayed on the road except for about four weeks during the pandemic. It was, it was anxiety producing to be out in the midst of it, even for me. Yeah. But a lot of the work, a lot of the participants and people we worked with would either, either come in on Zoom you know, so the having everybody there, it changed, but a lot more um, anxiety, mental health issues. I think families noticing it because they were in tight quarters. Yeah. So a lot of families either came together closer or there was more divorce. Um, and the other thing that I think isn't talked about as much that's been happening parallel to the pandemic and then fueled by the pandemic is that there's poison in the drugs. So we went from mm -hmm. 197 opiate overdose deaths a day to 255 opiate overdose oh deaths God. a day because of the fentanyl 
there's just a program, uh, just a report that came out the other day looking at highlighting the middle schoolers that are dying. So it's like today there's also not even room for experimentation, you know, because we have kids who are using for the first time, second time, and it's got fentanyl in it, and they overdose and die. So that's painful too, and that just ripples through communities and through families and the other so thing about scary. the pandemic, too, it's so scary. So more intense mental health issues, higher suicide rates, more um, uh, more addiction. And then those of us, you know, essential workers, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic, but we're exhausted. You know, yeah. that's the other thing, too, is that it wasn't a it wasn't like everybody got like a, a time off and rested. You know, it was it was a different kind of time and I think particularly in the beginning not knowing as much about it so it was like yeah. if I breathe the air if I how am I going to catch it and not especially in the beginning with so many folks and then grieving myself the individuals that I know who passed away from it so it's been it's been hard and it's changed the way I work I think it's changed how I look at um uh, how I look at life and then the other side of it is that my husband and I had a very dear, sweet time together during the pandemic. I mean, it couldn't have been better for us in that, you know, I before was on the road a lot and he's an attorney and he works out of the home. So we had much more time together. And even down to the fact that, you know, I have 11 acres. And so, but we're next to, I didn't even know this, we're next to like 10 miles of hiking trails. When you have 11 acres, you just usually let the dogs out. So we started taking the dogs for a walk. <laughs> just because you needed this, something like, to do. <laughs> cool, like right next door, you know. So, you know, if it weren't for the pandemic, we never would have found it. So we had, you know, again, just like a very dear, sweet, lovely time, you know, just connecting even deeper and cooking together oh. and being together. And, and yeah, it was, it was, that it was good. It was a good time for us. No, that sounds so really lovely. That was stressful. Yeah. I mean, how did you kind of handle the your own sanity around it? Like, how did you kind of stay grounded or replenish or like, I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of really good kind of co-regulation and bonding time, but like how yes. it, it not, it was, it sounds like it was really nonstop. It was, it really was sort of nonstop. And so for me, I mean, probably one of the most grounding, self-loving thing I do is have my time with the horses and they're right here on the farm. So even throughout the pandemic, you know, I rode every day. I actually broke my hand. I came off and broke my hand like three weeks into like the height of it just starting and had to go into the ER with, they wouldn't let my husband come with me and, and there was COVID in there and I had like three masks on and I like didn't want to sit down. I mean, we just didn't know. It was really scary, but I got the hand set and didn't ride for about three days and then was back on with my cast holding the reins like this, you know? <laughs> and so I had, uh, I was able to have, you know, my time with the horses, the time with my husband, my friends and I, you know, meetings went zoom, they weren't virtual. And my friends and I really did a good job of trying to, uh, connect. We'd have virtual tea. So I think in some ways we probably got together and connected like that, maybe more so than we usually would do. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, trying to make that effort just to have that support. 
And then part of what has always been important for me, you know, I had a very important um, therapist that I think really laid the groundwork to me, you know, saying, hey, I need some help. I think he beautifully, when I first met him, I had run away from home and um, uh, my parents made me go see, they'd already made me see like probably everybody in town. (laughs) <laughs> but I really connected with this guy. Of course, it turns out he's in recovery. So he had been so important to me. So I was in therapy before I went to treatment. And throughout my um, my recovery, throughout my time, I've always been in therapy. And so that was another thing that was helpful. Like that didn't stop. In fact, I now know that I can do it virtually and I don't have to drive 45 minutes there, 45 minutes back. <laughs> it's gotten more <laughs> convenient for me. You know? So you know, I tried to really bring in all of my self-care that I could and be okay with the self-care that I couldn't, you know. Yeah. Like, I always, you know, have felt, I like getting my nails done, but it's kind of a hassle. And so it was kind of nice to be like, you know what, my toenails aren't painted and it's just okay. Like My know, hand is so. broken, deal with it. <laughs> That's right. That's it. You know, here you go. So, uh, yeah. I mean, did you find that, like, because I know there's already kind of so much protocol in terms of intervention, and this is like an off-the-book off question, but like, did you find that you had to change any behaviors when entering a new space with a new family that like you had to be, not just in terms of kind of medical I, protocol, but like that there was more sensitivity around having a new person around? Absolutely. Everyone was anxious about it. So I did interventions where we would do the prep meeting instead of in person, we'd do it on Zoom. I did interventions where we sat outside with our masks on and we were, you know, social distanced. We threw out the, you know, from the beginning of when they began to be able to test, I was going sometimes as much as every day, if not, you know, a minimum once a week, if not twice a week or three times a week. So I was testing. I would ask, you know, families to test so that we all knew that we were okay. And I like, you know, I already am a little bit, you know, I love Clorox wipes and I like to be <laughs> kind of clean and neat. So I already, like, I didn't have to go buy anything because I'm a little, you know, I kind of have like my little quirky, you know, uh, hoarders, hoardering, uh, uh, not really, but I just had plenty of that. So I upped my game, you know, and I found like certain sprays that you could spray on the pillows at the hotels that would, you know, in the bedding and different ways, you know, lavender spray, Whole Foods, some places have some great stuff. But, you know, so I would do more of that too. And I was much more aware, like not giving you a hug, that kind of thing. So more sensitivity and also really working with the families too, to see where they were at with it. No, Um, that's really like families. Yeah. No, sorry to interrupt, but it just, it strikes me. It it just like occurred to me that you're like so much of your time kind of in the equine world like that's taught me how to navigate like body communication and I wonder like how many situations you enter like with spooky horses who are actually just inter- families on- upon whom you are intervening exactly <laughs> like, calm and assertive <laughs> that's right it's okay that's right here's what we're gonna do I exactly exactly and you know there is a part of me from the horse world like you know I say I like my Clorox wipes and all that but there's also um you know I am not scared to get dirty and clean stalls and you know all of that stuff either and then you know cleaned a stall and and you know 
pick up a, a, a bagel and eat it with my dirty hands, you know. So I also had to kind of remind myself, too, like, you know, don't forget, you know, put the hand sanitizer, this and that. But there was don't such forget an your feral. <laughs> that's it. Forget. That's right. All. So there was a whole, um, you know, different read. And some families I worked with, it was, again, seeing families across the board, too, and where they were at versus where I was at. Some families were very anxious and, 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 and wanted gloves and masks and everything, and I was okay with that. Other families were maybe looser than I felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. So I had to have work boundaries. with them around that as well. Yes, around that as well. Yeah. And yeah. also, like, knowing, you know, when someone, if you need an intervention, you know, you're probably out there using drugs in places where people aren't really, you know, sanitizing their hands. <laughs> yeah, super cautious. Right. Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, like, the, I guess some drugs lead to, like, obsessive cleanliness, but not that many. <laughs> not that many. <laughs> um, so for another graceful sober sex pivot, now about sex. Um, and we touched on this a little bit, but, like, what's your earliest me- memory of messaging that you received around sex or around sexuality? Like, you touched a little bit on, like, uh, being a Southern woman and kind of having mm-hmm. the Judeo-Christian influence of AA, but, like, prior to that, what did... What did that information, like, how did you receive that information? You know, so my parents were very into not lying to the children, even though the home was chaotic and they lied. They would tell you that, you know. So from the beginning, I knew there was no Santa. The Easter Bunny didn't exist. And pretty early on, when I started asking how babies were made, I got told, even before I kind of... You know, I think it was in about second grade. So I was about six or about seven years old. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I understood it from like I was told about it wasn't something that we weren't, you know, that we didn't talk about. You know, my mother talked to me about um, menstruation and how that was going to, you know, how my body would change and and all of that. But there was still that shame messaging Um it was first off, it's nothing, you didn't do it until you were married. You waited and you didn't want to be one of those girls. Mm-hmm. You know, there was that shame layering around it. You know, interesting, later on I found out that I didn't lose my virginity until I was about 18 and a half, which was old compared to like my friends. But they were all telling us, you know, they were all saying, that they weren't doing it either. And then when I finally did, they were like, oh, yeah, we've been doing it for years. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Like, what? what? <laughs> it's like starting. So like, right. How did that, what happened there? Now I'm going to um, with you. <laughs> that's right. Hmm. But there was a lot of, um, you know, I think that was a lot of the messaging. And, you know, uh, it, it was it was safe for love. It was, uh, you know, a bit taboo. Um and you didn't really, we would talk about it, but we didn't really talk about it in the home. And so that was, um, those are some of my earlier mem- memories about it. Yeah. And then how did addiction enter the picture? So when addiction, so you, again, my addiction entered early on, like I started using them when I was about 13. So part of it, I was so painfully shy particularly not around my friends, but around boys that I was attracted to that like my whole spiel was like, if I had a crush on a boy, I would like be on the opposite 
Like I wouldn't even talk to him. Like that was, it was too overwhelming or too mm -hmm. much. So I can remember one of the first times I drank, I was at a party and all of a sudden I wasn't shy anymore. In fact, I was like, you know, I could talk to the cute guys. I could, you know, so it became like my lubricant, you know, to be able to like socialize. And I think that, you know, again, I was still like my self-esteem. I think that fueled the whole and not getting my needs met. Like I have a crush on a guy. So God forbid I could go talk to him because you're going to get hurt or they're going to reject you. So run the other way first. So it was also confusing. And then adding, you know, substances to it almost launched me to the other end of the continuum. So mm -hmm. like, here I am, you know, I'm in your face. I'm, you know, think I'm probably funnier than I am. And, um, so it got, it, you know, it got really mixed up. And then a lot of, again, like I said, through, you know, I would black out just almost from the beginning, which is just such an unfortunate thing because, you know, it really, my, if I look back on it, like my time where I go, oh, hey, I really had a great fun time was so short. You know, it really yeah. quickly became a need. But I think, you know, sex and love and, and, and the boundaries of it and the pacing of it all got confused. So I would end up with lots of, of regret and self-hatred for what did I do? Was that okay? Was that not okay? And my first kind of real boyfriend um, introduced me, you know, um, to sex and also introduced me to a lot of the harder drugs. So all of that came together. Yeah. And then how and it's like intrinsically linked. <laughs> yes. Intrinsically, you have to like, yes. You know, uh, like dewire the bomb or whatever. That's right. Exactly. And so I believe, you know, for me in recovery, you know, there was a lot of healing and learning about it and, and, and really trying to sort out what, what was okay and what wasn't okay, you know, for me, like, you know, how do I pace, like when you're dating, you know, how soon do you uh, become sexual and trying to sort out, well, that was too soon or, or, uh, waited too long or wasn't really comfortable with this person kind of didn't really want to, but did, or just trying to really sort through feeling more solid and confident in myself. Does oh that my make God. sense? Oh, totally. And I so relate. Like, I think for a long time, especially sharing like what you were talking about in terms of feeling um, very shy and kind of reserved and like, the intensity of the feelings would be too overwhelming. So I would just kind of like shut up like a little clam and then like yeah. doing cocaine for the first time and feeling like, finally, like I am cool. <laughs> it's the first time in my life. I am cool. And, um, and kind of in recovery, having to li very literally recover that piece that is like, could help me differentiate my feelings from my people pleasing. Cause for a long time, I especially in recovery, like my, I used hard and fast, and then thanks to you, <laughs> that was arrested. Um, but then the the work of kind of being like, wait, like what? I think a lot of instances in my recovery were instances where I thought like I was in that situation, so I had to perform in a certain way, and I didn't even know I had options because I was so kind of like a codependent. <laughs> Right, right. I totally understand uh, that and relate. 
And so I think it takes yeah. like that, that, you know, the, the time and the work and the, the introspection to kind of figure out and become confident with one's own needs and one's own boundaries, or even to like start to figure out what they might look like or feel like. And what the options are, like you said, like not even knowing what the options are and getting to that place of self-worth where it's like, it's okay for me to have boundaries and options while also kind of doing the work for me and, and kind of grieving and sorting out the fact that I didn't and, you know, really trying to come to terms with Heather on drugs and Mm -hmm. Heather not on drugs and having that dialogue within myself you know, about, you know, I think of it more like I did a lot of, um, you know, back in the eighties, a lot of inner child work too, and inner teen and really communicating with the different, you know, facets, facets of myself or parts of myself where it's sort of like, I didn't take good care of me. And there's part of me that's mad at me about that. And then there's, you know, now I'm trying to step in and also have a part of me that looks like a rebellious teenager that says, don't tell me what to do and I'll do what I want to if it feels good and <laughs> really trying to integrate all of those and, and bring them together in a way where, like you said, feel more holistically healed. And it just, and it takes time sorting all that out while also, you know, learning how to not use drugs and learning how to, you know, and I was also, um, I kind of had this glob when they said, what is your drug of choice? I never, I was kind of like, don't make me pick this one. Like I like this combination, (laughs) but I definitely, definitely had a love for the stimulants. So I can remember the first time I took speed um, thinking, I I mean, I remember literally saying, why would you walk when you can run? Like, let's go, (laughs) come on. Like I am wonder woman, you know, and cocaine like fed right (laughs) into that. And so I was like Wonder Woman until I was crazy, <laughs> until I wasn't. <laughs> until totally was trying to like get me, right? You're like, how do I come down from this place? It's That's horrible. It. Wonder Woman is now retreating to the cave and hiding and putting towels around all the windows and you know, yeah, dismantling yeah. the phones. Anyway, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, no, but it's I, I and I love how you kind of talk about parts work because we love parts work on summer sex. But, yes. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of tricky because in some, like, part of my kind of fundamentalist recovery piece is, like, this is California sober psychobabble. This is from getting your head shrunk. And, and the other part is, like, actually, it was necessary to have the outside help to be able to integrate because, like, as much as I love the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous, it definitely gets into this place where it's, like, you know, written by a bunch of, like, hetero cis white dudes in the 1930s and they were doing the best they could but like they they're not really like every part of you is valid and valuable (laughs) yes right right well you know even like um you know I love that I love you talking about that because even like a lot of the research and a lot of the way treatment was done like was based on what was called the Jelinek curve and Dr. Jelinek studied about 200 white cis males And then they developed what was called sort of the Minnesota model. And then come along later on, you know, the work of like Stephanie Covington and there's a um, amazing, like the birth of feminist psychology, the birth of um, relational cultural psychology, which was connected to the Stone Center out of Wellesley that came around. They weren't talking about it as much around addiction, but it's so overlaps. And what their theory really said is that 
particularly as women, we all, you have to take into account, you know, our, uh, uh, you have to take into account our sexuality. You have to take into account our race. You have to take into account um, how we identify, but that we recover relationally and that we mm. have to have relations. You know, it's through relationships that we get get better. And in healthy relationships, you know, we feel alive. We have purpose. We have meaning. We have passion. And it's when our relationships get um, impacted or impaired that we begin to struggle and suffer. And so we need that relational piece. And if you think about how treatment initially you know, again, doing the best they could, but a woman would go into treatment and get told, okay, you can't have your phone for X number of days. You can't talk to your children. You can't talk to your support group. Um, it's kind of the opposite. And, you know, Stephanie Covington talks about like the Jelinek had a curve. She talked more about this like spiral and mm -hmm. how we, when, when women decline, you know, and the gel nut curve gave us like the signs and symptoms. I mean, it's super helpful, but she talked more about how we, it's more cyclical and that our recovery is also more um, like a spiral. So it's different and really highlights again, how important it is that we look at the basics, the basic text, the big book, get what we can, but also continue with that beginning platform to grow yeah. and look at and modernize and say, you know, who am I as a woman? You know, I, I got, you know, I got sober in the eighties and I'm a therapist. So, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you the things that uh, I've done. Like if they said to me, this will heal you. I did. I mean, I have gotten rebirthed. I've done past life therapies. I've, I've crawled through a birthing tunnel. I've practically eaten Chinese dirt. I mean, you know, I've talked to empty chairs. I've role played. I've psychodrama. I mean, you know, if if they said, try it and here it is, you know, part of it was like, if I'm going to be a therapist, I can't ask my clients to do anything I'm not willing to mm -hmm. do and try myself. But, um, you know, I sometimes, like you said, too, look back on that and go, okay, you know, like I today don't, you know, make people crawl through a birthing canal <laughs> as part of the intervention. <laughs> there may be a good part for that somewhere. But I think about, you know, I don't do it regularly, but it was a piece in the moment that was profound and part of my healing and, um, you know, really, uh, really important. So it is kind of coming back and making, I don't think about it often, but it's like you said, like there was a place for it, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I remember I got, I, I was in grad school and I had saved this woman was coming in who did like rebirthing therapy and all my friends had like, they were going and having sessions. And, um, so I saved my money cause it was like $300, which was a lot for me back then. And I remember I was having my session. And so it was sort of like a guided medicate meditation and she's, you know, guiding me through, you know, and I'm in the womb and the next thing I know, she starts like piling these pillows on top of me. And I know like she's, simulating that in-womb experience and it's getting big and we're about to rebirth. But in my head, you know, I still had that part of me going, I just paid $300 for this thing to sit on my head. Like, what is wrong with me? So, yeah. But then being a good codependent, I'm like, go into it. Like, let's just, let's just, let's just get out of this womb so fast that we can go on. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, some of it is like, is also trying stuff and saying like, what works for me? What doesn't?
Yeah, totally. And I do think that like one thing that recovery is good at is that kind of set aside prayer, that like suspension of disbelief. Just like, let me set aside yeah. what I think I know and give this a fucking chance. <laughs> That's right. That's and right. Maybe somebody knows more than I do. Maybe. Right. <laughs> Skeptical. Maybe. But no, I mean, I, I really like what you were saying about it, it being kind of a, a relationship based idea of wellness. Because I do notice that like, you know, when I'm sick and when I'm really in my ego, even if we're talking about on kind of like a spiritual term, like if I'm in my ego or if I'm in, if in my, I'm in depression <laughs> in a more clinical sense, that like it's very difficult to connect and I feel competition is everywhere and it's always like compare and despair, blah, blah, blah. And then like if I'm well in my life, you know, it's about connection. Like it's because I can observe the connections being like nourishing and creative and joyful you know and like even if things aren't going great it's the idea of having kind of a, a network of of love that like really has been entirely due to recovery you know and so I love that you kind of reframe this idea of like a solitary journey into into something that feels more kind of communal absolutely yeah that's so beautifully said I mean that is such the for me, that was such the healing part is just having this support system that was really authentic and genuine and people cared and would support me. And even, you know, like when I moved to Boston to go to graduate school, I mean, how fortunate that I could step in and have rooms of people that I didn't know, but I knew. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's really, and that I can travel all over and walk in to a room of people who I don't know but I know and they don't know me but they know yeah it's funny I was we we just um my partner and I just finished watching dope sick which oh was oh incredible. my god it was really I just I thought about it a lot even though I got a little bit like huh because I felt like their portrayal of 12 step was not that great but was not that great no no I didn't like when she sold her drugs in the bathroom the game. I'm like, really Spoiler that's alert. what you're gonna do for us like yeah on that platform like no Anyway, yeah. yes, I totally and, agree. Yeah, that was my that. commentary. Exactly. <laughs> but, but I got really yeah. emotional at when, um, you know, it's, again, like if you're watching Dope Sick, skip ahead 35 seconds, you'll be fine. But when he's, you know, driving other addicts to treatment, essentially, and this is the, yeah. like, the healing point, I was just like, he loves them. <laughs> he's, he's, he's healing them. They're yeah. healing each other. Because, like, that's it, right? I, like, that's the whole thing. That's it. That's it. That is. It's so beautiful. And I loved, you know, like after I got um, probably early in my career, I worked with the addicted physicians. So there were so many parallels for me, like to see, you know, a physician and how he became addicted and his recovery and just a lot of the parallels. And then I remember, like I was working, like I remember all of a sudden my clients, like the trends, everyone's on oxys and roxys. And I see that happening. And then I'm hearing the medical profession talk about breakthrough pain. Mm -hmm. And I see, you know, all of a sudden we've got like the new fourth vital sign pain and you've got the little faces in the, in the doctor's offices and stuff. And so it was so infuriating to really hear the connection between big pharma and the false data and the made up terminology that really fueled that. I mean, it was really, it was so hard for me to watch. It just made me so mad because I've also been on the other side of working with families and watching their loved ones struggle and 
die and the difficulty of coming off of this pill and then how it fed into really the opiate epidemic we're in now. So, yeah. No, I mean, I, th I totally agree. It's funny because I, I got sober in 2006, so like just kind of caught the tail end of that kind of being the new reality. And I remember hearing a yeah. lot of like Dr. Drew talking about that on Loveline about like the science of pseudo addiction and <laughs> just being like, what right, the fuck right, is that? Right. You know? Right. And what so, the fuck is that? Right. And to hear you yeah. kind of, you know, like having been in recovery a long time kind of before that and see it come like a storm. And I think that, you know, this is totally not <laughs> like entered yeah. entirely not sober sex territory, but who cares? Um, the idea that it's actually created a whole mindset, I think, especially within the American culture, that pain is not part of healing, right. you know? And maybe it doesn't have to be, but I kind of think it does. <laughs> like, Yeah, it does. I, think, I think it does. And I think it's also that pain is part of healing and, like, that's part of cleaning out, you know, those wounds. And the other thing about it, too, is that, um, you know, it's okay to be in pain. Yeah. You know, we don't have to live, like, we also live in such a chemical culture. Mm -hmm. You know, that it, that if you, you know, if you have a headache, you don't just take, a, you know, you don't just take a, a, you know, a pill, you take an extra strength pill. You know, if you are having a good time, it'll be made better if you're drinking. If you, you know, again, even down to, you know, to link it back in, you know, I think there'd be some interesting talks and thoughts and discussions about, you know, uh, Viagra and Cialis and, and some of the, um, pills that are used that, you know, probably sometimes medically needed and other times probably aren't, you know, and people, you know, the use of like, I need a pill to be able to perform and yeah. what that means. And yeah. All of that. I mean, that's so interesting that you say that. Cause I feel like the first, and this is like maybe TMI, but I think the first time I really recognized that I was like in a relationship that was healing me beyond the place I had kind of been it been in within my like sober sexuality was like I I felt for the first time that I was in that kind of performative people pleasing space without my own consent like I just kind of like disassociated and <laughs> that's where I go yeah. and like yeah. what felt safe enough with a partner to let that feeling come up of like oh no like this is what I've been doing my whole life fuck and like feel the sadness and shame around it and like Prior to that, it was just the, the mode of operation. And it wasn't until the, the kind of pain point of like, oh, no, this is no longer acceptable. And it's safe enough to, like, reveal that interpersonally that, like, true, maybe not true, but like an evolving intimacy was allowed to happen. And yes. I wonder, like, yeah, that, the, that as they do say in the literature, like, pain is the touchstone of all spiritual progress. <laughs> so right, that's right. Speaking of that, like, how did you eventually get sober? Like, where, how, how did the pain point of the intersection of, like, sex and or drugs and or cocaine-fueled psychosis in the DS, <laughs> DSM-2 right, right, right. <laughs> uh, right. land you in, in recovery? I think um, the, the pain was, was it, the pain and the shame and the continuing to do the same thing over and over again. And I had gone, you know, I had been so hurt you know I had a lot of insecurities and like I said that when I started using they were gone that was fun mm -hmm. and I had a good time and it was you know I felt this freedom that quickly was gone and I would have these moments and I really do think 
that having had something as a child that I loved, that had been so important to me, that I was good enough at, um, and which was the horses and my ride, you know, that there was somewhere in, inside me that planted a, um, uh, like a, like a seed of knowing that my life didn't have to be like this. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, had, you know, it was just the same cycle. I was off at university of Georgia and I was, you know, my life was just a wreck and I would use and I was taking quaaludes and I would black out and I would, you know, that every day I'd wake up and say today's going to be different. And at the end of the day, it wasn't. And I wouldn't remember what I'd done. And I would ask myself, cause I was a wonderer. I would say, what is so wrong with my life mm -hmm. that I, from the moment I get up to the minute I go to bed, I have to be like, not in reality. Like I would hit the bomb before I'd get out of bed. I'd pop some speed. I, you know, I mean, granted, it was probably four or five in the afternoon when I got up, but still, like, what was so wrong that I couldn't, you know, and what was going to happen? You know, like, I would ask myself, too, like, how, where does this go? Like, I'm, like, I'm, like, where do, where do I end up? Like, I'm going to, I'm not doing, I'm failing out of school, you know, I'm, like, you know, my friends get, like, I'm running people off, you know, my relationships are awful, I throw up. I mean, it was awful. So, finally, <laughs> I, you know, I reached out to that psychologist, Dr. Butcher, and I, I kind of reached out the summer before I went back to my third year of college, and I said, um, I went into his office, and I said, I'm a drug addict. I can't stop. I can't stop. And he said, well, do you need to go to rehab? And I went, whoa, no, of course not. I'm like, oh, not like that. It feels a bit know, extreme, yeah. sir. <laughs> That's right. Like, right. I don't know. You're like, look, you know, back down, bud. <laughs> so we started talking, and he said, you know, okay, well, he was so brilliant about it. He was like, here's what I want you to do. You know what? I want you to just try and do one or two and stop. Let's reel it in. And I, can you do that? And I said, of course I can. Well, of course I couldn't. <laughs> so <laughs> started this period of me having this, you know, with myself trying to like looking at it and what, you know, wondering how can I make it different? Like I, I didn't want to stop. I just wanted to not have blackouts. I wanted to not say horrible things to people. I didn't want to wake up in places I didn't want to wake up in. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to fail out of school. I didn't want to be depressed. I didn't want to feel psychotic. No so, consequences, please. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So finally, literally it was one night in, uh, Feb in, it was one night in February of 1982 I had these college roommates and, um, I did my usual, I like, I'd gone out, came home. And I mean, I would like, uh, like a quart of vodka at a time too, on top of all the drugs. So I was not pretty much every night I would throw up. So I threw up and then I remember like going in to my roommates and I said, you know, that's it. I'm going to rehab. And they were like, go sleep it off. You're going to be okay. And the next day I picked up the phone and I called Dr. Butcher was his name. And I said, I got to go to rehab. I can't do it anymore. But it was that pain. It was that struggle. It was that ability. I mean, it was really, I think, divine intervention because somehow, some way I had this part of myself that said, this doesn't end well. And this is not your purpose. And this is not what you're here to do. So <laughs> go get some help. Yeah. Now I didn't know what help looked like and I was scared when I got there and, you know, I really didn't think it meant quit forever and all of that. But 
a few weeks in, I started really, I mean, I had that, I think as my brain chemistry started to clear because I was so impaired, suddenly I started to see, I'm going to die. And it's going to be a miserable trip there. Yeah. And so I got to, I got to, I got to do this. And I made it, you know, for me, and in working with Dr. Butcher, like I really also came to the place where I was like, I do believe a day at a time keeps me sane. But I also knew that if I said, I'm not going to use today, but I'll use tomorrow if I'm in Timbuktu on top of a phone pole and there's a big pile of cocaine up there, that I'd find myself in Timbuktu on top yeah. of a phone pole. With <laughs> Manifestation, a baby. That's it. <laughs> so I knew that I had to work really hard just to shut that door and that my mantra became, you know, no matter what, you just don't use. You know, there's only one way to make it worse. Whatever it is, you know, that's to you. So no matter what, you just don't use. Yeah. And, you know, and there were days where it was super hard. And, you know, even throughout, you know, like throughout my recovery, you know, there have been things that have been so hard, so painful, where I've like really been like, you know, that saying God doesn't give you more than you handle one day. And I'm like, look, look, you're fucking pushing it. Like, you know, like <laughs> you're like right on the cusp, like slow it back it down a little bit, you know. But, um, but everything always ends up okay and better, you know, like I've been through divorces, I've been through, um, suddenly losing parents, I've been through, you know, personal betrayals and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But I've also had like the most incredible loving relationships and best friends in the world. And, you know, I look out and have my horses right there. I mean, you know, everything that I've ever needed, I've got. And I, everything I've pretty much ever wanted, I've gotten. And I'm blessed enough to be able to really um, have the opportunity to, like, connect with so many people and help them on their journey, too. And it's not really, I don't really think of it as me. Like, I really think that's, like, spiritual divine intervention because I'm just, like, a, a guide. Like, I can help show you the path but like you did all that work and that's so beautiful and now to even see like what a a bright shining soul you are in this world Louisa like that is like makes me like so fulfilled <laughs> I've already cried um but I was trying to be cool about it <laughs> um you know honestly like especially when you were talking about like the part of you that was in pain and the part that kind of knew that it didn't have to be that way. And I remember like being in the back of the car going to, going to rehab with you and you talking to me about your horses and like me, like, like immediately feeling like it was going to be okay. Cause I knew yeah. that like you, you were, you were walking the walk and like, you weren't full of shit. And we can't, we had that really in common as the kind of like divine, like linchpin. And then yeah, yeah, yeah. to get to talk to you about this stuff, like two days before your, you know, 40th sober birthday. And to like, when you talk about like the, the divine gift of getting to be a guide, like, I thank God it was you. Like, because I don't know if anybody else could have gotten gotten me in that moment, you know, because I was so freaked out and scared and like 
unprepared for a life in recovery. And uh, I did not anticipate this. I mean, a little bit. <laughs> but, um, but man, like, what a gift to be able to, like, uh, you know, take that. And, and also, like, because I think in a lot of ways, like, you know, the recovery industry can be so full of shit. And you yeah. weren't. You know, and like, I'm so fucking grateful because like, as a result of that, I get to, you know, watch, watch a similar process and the people I get to sponsor and, uh, or just kind of like, you know, the, the, the fellowship that we have around the world, not only within like the rooms, but just like getting to connect with people like that. Like, and I, I, I feel forever indebted for you to put that in motion in my life and also in the life of my family, because like, I mean, it's uh I told my mom that we were speaking today and she uh she she sends her, love her. eternal love, you know. <laughs> oh, I love her. I know. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, what a what an amazing yeah. thing to get to to share today. Uh and I'm so Oh, yeah, it's incredible. And I'm so proud of you. I mean, it's been so beautiful and you have given so much to me on so many levels. Like I really just have such fond memories of like being out in California and going and visiting you and your horse got moved out there and how important and then our time together in Paris and you know when I lost Nick last April I can't tell you how much it meant to me when you reached out because I knew that you knew yeah how painful that was for me and I knew that you'd been through it and um that was just such a comfort you know no I mean and I I I, I've been there and I I love that like we get to um, kind of wear this mantle, you know, of like a love like this, which sounds like cheesier and ins or insane <laughs> to people who might not get it, as you mentioned earlier. <laughs> but, you know, it's like kind of vital, like it's like a North Star of like, for me, what um, divine love feels like because it's so yeah. easy and pure. And so to know that like you knew about that was very... Uh, it meant a lot, you know, and it continues to mean a lot. Um, woo <laughs> uh, so, um, how, <laughs> it's like such a silly question after, <laughs> how does or did you know, your recovery inform your relationships, either sexual or romantic or, you know, uh, with horses, as we say, <laughs> or were, right, or right, right. how, how has your, you know, the journey from, from that place of being a freaked out, you know, kid in rehab to yeah. the woman who sits before us emanating light. <laughs> um. <laughs> it's been a long, strange trip. I mean, I think it's been lots of, um, you know, lots of mistakes, lots of learning, lots of trying to be honest with myself, lots of trying to clean up things I didn't do right, and then embracing things that I did. I think it's been a lot of um, getting to know myself um, better. And also, as I think my self-esteem grew, like picking partners that were better matches for me. Mm -hmm. You know, like yes. I couldn't. <laughs> yes, yeah, my picker was broke, as they say. And, um, you know, it took a long time to end up where I'm at now. But, you know, to be in a relationship, and um, with a partner who 
like loves and adores me and supports my career and loves to see me shine and works hard himself and we're able to come and connect like that's years of my own work and my own recovery and you know the beautiful connection too of like um with my husband my stepdaughter's sober three years and so which is incredible she's 22 so young and um she came to us and said she needed help and so to also have been able to be like the gift of all of that too is not only my own recovery, but to be able to sit in the family groups at the same facility you went to in Pennsylvania <laughs> as <out>. a parent. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and to experience that and to show up and to be authentic. Like it's just always, again, in relationships, through relationships and trying to be, I mean, look, believe me, I can get as defensive and not want to hear hard stuff as anybody. And early on, it was kind of like my sense of self was so brittle. It was mm. like, you know, just don't tell me anything not nice. Um, but to <laughs> be able to sit and say, tell me what I need to hear and let me take that and process it and try and make some changes or not, or but at least be open and really working hard to keep that connection with myself because, you know, anything we put before our recovery, we lose. So that's about taking care of myself and keeping that connection with myself. But then also keeping hard to work at connection and relationship, too. Because, you know, every day is a gift. So it's important for me to not take anything for granted and to love as hard as I can, you know, with just, you know, love with abandon every day. And to try and remember you know, to, to be kind when people are going through other things and let my husband know how much I love him and my friends and, you know, love on the animals. And, you know, we only have today. So live today in a way where I live it with integrity and, you know, also letting others know how important it is. Oh, I love that. And I really love seeing like, how much it seems like this relationship has like allowed you to blossom in a new way. Like you sound so happy and I'm so happy to see you so happy. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Um, Yes. Yes. So you treat and intervene on all sorts of addiction disorders. And I know that like it can, like sex and love addiction can be controversial. Uh, What's your stance on, on, on that controversy (laughs) and what does treatment look like for that, those kind of addictions? Absolutely. You know, I think that, you know, again, when, when we are disconnected with ourselves, when we're struggling, we can get addicted to all kinds of things, you know, and then there are also straight mental health issues and eating disorders and other things that have to do with our relationship with ourselves and how we project. But, but I do see people struggle often with love, you know, love addiction with sex addiction. And it's a real thing. And I do know it gets controversial because I think People often don't um, understand it. You know, Mm -hmm. if we don't understand something, sometimes we get scared of it or we want to stay clear of it. But it's, um, you know, it's absolutely a real thing. And it also, again, like affects the whole family system because, you know, again, it's about having coping skills, looking at, you know, for a lot of folks, you know, it's connected to childhood trauma that's not healed and Mm -hmm. looking at different ways of coping, but then also 
a big part, I think, in relationship too is how do I live my life where I'm not hurting other people all the time? Yeah. Even if I'm and in pain. So, even if I'm in pain, hurt people hurt people. So yeah. how do I, you know, take care of that? Yeah. Awesome. And I mean, and it's, it's interesting too, because I think part of this, the work of what we try and do on this podcast is like kind of tease out the difference between like something that might be like more like pathological like sex right. or love addiction and also the idea that like people in recovery often just struggle with sex and relationships even though it is maybe right. not like presenting as addiction like it's because it's hard <laughs> it's hard that's it it's hard and we missed out on a lot of those you know beginning ways and you know it's hard because we learn it from our parents and our parents often had a hard time with it you know my parents divorced and remarried each other three times. Three times? Oh three God. times. Like, they didn't just have fights. They had divorces. They didn't just make up. We'd have to have little weddings. I mean, it was crazy. So, like, I, you know, for a long time didn't know how to leave when it was time to leave. And, you know, it was, you know, all that stuff. So, there's not like, there ought to be like a class we start teaching the kids when they're young, like called Relationships 101, you know, where they learn about communication and mutual respect and mutuality and, and all of that, you know, boundaries. But we don't get a good, you know, you're right. We can be really good at the stuff we learn, career, bam, got it, you know. Yeah. But personal I mean, I stuff. I wonder who would teach is. the relationships class. That's it, right. Like, exactly. <laughs> that's the problem too yeah so it is it's hard it's hard for all of us it's probably the biggest struggle and then you know also I think there is that protective um uh, I feel protective to a part of it too because you know throughout my years I've seen you know young women and young men who come into the rooms and you know are preyed upon you mm -hmm. know by others who haven't done their work who um you know and you know we we flippantly kind of call it 13 stepping, but it can be even painful too. Like if yeah. the rooms, you know, ideally the rooms are a safe place for us to come and heal and bring all of our stuff with us. And a lot of that stuff is not knowing how to interact, you know, on a sexual level and leading with our sexuality or, you know, feeling like, you know, that's the only worth you have. Yeah. yeah. So I think it gets really confusing for folks too. No, yeah. totally. Especially because you did, you know, you mentioned hurt people, hurt people, and that idea of like, you know, there's a lot of vulnerable people in this population of, of addicts and alcoholics. And there's a lot of people who, due to their own injuries, don't take very good care of, of others, you know, the vulnerable population. So, yes. like, I, and it's tough because it's like, you know, how do we keep this safe for everybody, including people who might be predatory? Or, I mean, like, I have a, a friend who's just like, <laughs> they can get sober in jail, <laughs> which I'm not sure right, if I disagree right. with, but I'm also like, fuck, like, it's so know. heavy, you know? It is heavy. It is heavy. Yeah. Um, on a lighter heavy. note, <laughs> in 12-step recovery, there's a concept of a sex ideal or who we want to show up as in our sexual or romantic partnerships. So mm -hmm. are you working with a sex ideal today? Or if you were <laughs> to come up with one on the spot, what would it look like? <laughs> I think that would be, um, my sex ideal would be um, to, first off, like for me, foreplay is really connection. Like mm -hmm. it happens throughout the day, saying I love you, 
you know, oh, you made lunch for me. How sweet. Thank you. You know, um, like, believe me, I've been in relationships where I spent a majority of the day hearing what I'd done wrong, which is like a real good way to shut me down (laughs) You know, when it comes to going to bed at night. So, you know, to really, even during the day, it's all about having that connection, that healthy, beautiful connection where you're taking, you know, a few minutes to say, how are you today? Here's how I'm doing. You're like, let's connect. And then just show up and let that be just more of an expression of, um, of my, of, of love and of deep connection and deep understanding of each other. And it makes it just a beautiful, beautiful thing. I mean, there's nothing. A beautiful life, in fact. A beautiful life. And there's nothing more beautiful than, you know, making love to the person you're madly in love with. You know, that's like really, you know, incredible. So, um, and having the, you know, all the other connecting um, pieces as well, like, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, at night when we unwind, you know, we always, um, you know, sit like cuddled together on the sofa and, you know, we're always holding hands and all those little extra pieces to me that are important, you know, the, the touch and the, and the tenderness and the, and the kindness and, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I love how it, like, it sounds like you're not only receiving it, but like you're, you're there to give it, which is like, that's really special. It's, I'm not sure who you're talking about, if it's you or your partner, but it's working. <laughs> yeah, my husband, both of us. Yeah, to, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so with that, we, again, pivot <laughs> into the lightning round um, to, to round out a, 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 one of the best sober, episode, sober sex episodes of all time. <laughs> the most <laughs> I've cried, for sure. <laughs> um, um, so you travel a lot. What is in your carry-on? Oh, okay. That's cool. So in my carry-on that doesn't ever leave, you know, the clean clothes get dirty and they go out in my carry-on is, um, my vitamins, my melatonin, my hair products, my, uh, cords to make sure I can plug in. Um, um, and the plugging in is in my phone are my different, you know, my meditation apps, my NA text, my, you know, um, but back to my carry-on, you know, I always have, um, you know, just my like essential, my essentials, you know, my razor, I'm trying to think if there's anything dicey in my carry-on. I really (laughs) know. I mean, it does, it's just kind of like, I think I travel so much. It's about, you know, getting in, getting out, you know, comfy pajamas. I'm pretty adaptable when it comes to, to travel, you know, especially from the horse shows, like, yeah. you know, when you're showing horses out in the middle of nowhere, like sometimes you're in a motel six, like, you know, I like the Ritz Carlton, but if I have to stay <laughs> at the motel six for the horses, I can do it. But yeah, you know, I just try and have like my basics in there. And, um, but you know, the phone today is like such a way of connection too. Like it's, it's, um, you know, that piece allows me to travel in a way where I can FaceTime at night with my husband or, um, you know, read a book or, you know, do a meditation app if I want to, or whatever that is to help, 
take care. Kind of odd that I'm thinking that, yeah, it's all turned so electronic given my age, but, but that's a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. As somebody who also travels a lot, I think like the, the more regimented I can kind of have a system when I leave, the less anxious I am. (laughs) Definitely. It's important. So speaking of horse shows, you're an accomplished equestrian. Uh, Who are your horses right now? So right now I have a little mini who runs the show. I have Whoopi, who is an 18 year old Hanoverian that I imported over from Holland. And um, we do the jumper uh, division. We, I haven't shown her in a little while because she, for whatever reason, maybe it's because it's a she, she takes a lot and a lot, a lot of prep, but she's very, very spooky. Even in the ring here that we have ridden in, same day, same <laughs> ring for 10 years, every day. So, um, and I have a new horse, Dino. So Dino is Dutch. Thank you. He's so cute. He's a Dutch warm blood. I just got him in August. He is 13 years old. He's um, brown. He's like a big golden retriever. Like you've never seen a horse <laughs> that wants to like play so much. He's a little bit mouthy and naughty, but he's super sweet. He's such a good boy. So we've been working hard with my trainer to um, get ready to start showing him again this spring. So well, I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Hooray. Thank you. Uh, Hooray. What is, your- <laughs> what is your favorite snack? Oh, my favorite snack. Oh, gosh. What is my favorite snack? Probably cashews. Oof, delicious. Roasted? Salted? Unsalted? Salted cashews. Roasted salted cashews. Definitely one of my favorite snacks. Yeah. Delicious. Morning routine. Morning routine. <clears throat> I usually get up, like, it, from whatever I have to start doing something, I always put in, like, about an hour and a half ahead. So I get up. I drink. I'm a tea drinker. So I get up and I kind of like to ease into the morning. So I drink my tea, do my meditations. Um, and then I'll kind of catch up on text messages and emails. Um, I like to touch base and with current events and see, you know, make sure what's going on in the world today. Um, just a glance. I don't want to dig too deep because sometimes yeah, it's, it's grim, but I do want to like, if there's a tsunami head in my way, I'd like to know, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, spend some time with the, with, you know, just kind of waking up. And then in the best of all worlds, uh, the best days I get up and I always ride the horses first thing in the morning. So I'll go out, ride two horses, and then I come back and start to work. The dream. This is what we're all working towards. The dream. Towards. <laughs> this is the dream. By all, yes. I mean yourself and myself. <laughs> That's right. Yes, um, I could do it. <laughs> what turns you on? You might have answered um, this with the, the sex ideal, but, you know, in case you want to get specific. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, um, you know, my husband is just, like, to me, I just, like, I just look through at him just through such loving, adoring eyes, and he's so, you know, he's handsome, he's tall, he's strong, he's brilliant, he's funny. God, is he funny. Um, and he's so good to me. And, um, sometimes if, uh, he hears something where he feels like someone's wronged me or something, he's got this really sweet, but protective kind of strong, not like I'm going to kick somebody's ass, but he probably would if he had to, but (laughs) you know, I like that kind of extra sense of him knowing I can take care of myself, but also feeling this kind of 
um, it's, it's a protection, but it's also like just a hundred percent knowing he's on my side, you know, kind of a thing too. So, um, and, um, you know, I love, like I get, you know, spontaneity, like, um, I love uh, at the last minute saying, let's go grab dinner. I made us reservations or I love um, going away and um, traveling and seeing new things together and experiencing new things together with them. That's always, you know, that's always so fun for me. And I love like sometimes we'll go away and we both work so hard where it's just like, you know, I'm happy we've gone away and it's raining because we can just, you know, nap and hang out and watch movies all day you know it's good yeah oh you sound so in love I'm so delighted for you um this might be the the, you might have just answered it but what do you love same same or different (laughs) uh you know same like all of that and I you know and I love my I love my life I love my friends my horses I love my husband I love my stepchildren I love all my animals um you know, I really love my life, you know, and I love my higher power for gifting it to me, you know. Oh, yeah. And I love feeling loved and cherished by others, too. Like, I love both sides, love and cherishing, and I also love knowing that, you know, I have some dear people in my life where that's just so mutual. You know, I think that that one's much harder because I think it's, it's it takes a lot of, like, self-esteem and work to feel worthy of that kind of like love, you know, so I'm so, I I love that that that's kind of like an anchor point for you. What a nice, what a nice thing. And for anybody who might need your help, where can we find you on the World Wide Web? Absolutely. So my website is my name. So it's www.heatherhayes.com. And then Hayes is H-A-Y-E-S. But yeah, heatherhayes.com. I try every week to put out a blog different topics, you know, so if you ever think of a blog you want me to write about or in research, you know, I did one for Valentine's Day on the five love languages. Um, I mean, honestly, like listeners, check out Heather's blog, because if you are a person in recovery, there's a lot of useful stuff there. And even a person who's recovery adjacent, like there's some really interesting stuff, a lot of really good research and a lot of like the kind of latest information and news on addiction science. So check it out. Yeah, I've tried to Thank you. I've tried to do like stuff for family members and, and everyone. So yeah. Yeah. Well, it's I'm been a fan. <laughs> so amazing spending this time with you. I love you so much, Heather. Like you are a I gift in my you. life. <laughs> yeah, I love you so much and feel the same. You're Since a gift the first in my minute. Life. Have a most wonderful day. Give the ponies kisses for me and uh, hopefully speak to you soon. Yes. Headed out to ride me.